So what we found in our research, when you give kids access to just the opportunity, the at bet to do rigorous work, you're actually setting them up and giving them a better shot at success in life. And that is the myth that we are operating within because kids are in class and at school and engaged that, oh, great, they're getting access to the right work that's setting them up for success. That's a myth. Kids are not consistently getting access to the type of resources that they need. They're not getting access to that. So that's the myth. At a time when our society can feel more divided than ever, join us as we explore what it means to adapt and evolve together. Welcome to Say More. I'm Tulane Montgomery, CEO of New Profit, and your host. Hey, Say More family. Now, many of you may have heard me talk about something that me and my colleagues at New Profit affectionately call the MIC. MIC is an acronym for Multiracial Intergenerational Cross-Sector Coalition. And as our good friend Carla Monterosa, head of Brava Leaders, taught us in the first episode of Say More this season, when we talk about racial identity groups, it's also important to take into account the multitudes of cultures that exist within those groups. So the M of the MIC is sometimes for multiracial, but it also stands for multicultural. Again, multicultural, multiracial, intergenerational cross-sector coalition. We know that's a mouthful, so we just go ahead and call it the MIC. So why is all that important? Well, I'm a student of history and a futurist, and what history has taught me over and over again is that if the goal is systems change or the reinvention of existing systems, right, the only way that has ever happened in our history as a people is we have had to come together across identity and experience towards a common goal. I don't mean to imply that that is linear, easy, or smooth. In fact, the work of coalition building is messy, jagged, sometimes heartbreaking work. However, it is essential, it is required if systems change is the goal. Whenever you look at a system that seemed immovable, and you understand that at some point in history it was transformed, if you do your research, you will find a mic at the center of that transformation. Now, I want to be clear, my deep belief in the need for and power of the mic should not be confused with me not seeing the need for and importance of what some people call affinity spaces. I call them root and reflect spaces. What I mean is those places where you go into a room or a community or network and people share your identity, your story. They look like you. They may live like you. There's something about those spaces that is important, I think, for our general well-being. And certainly if our goal is to be healthy, thriving members of a mic. We see the importance of this when we look at education. So here's an interesting stat. More than half of the students in America's public schools identify as people of color. But 40% of schools don't have a single teacher of color. Now that's an issue not only of representation and diversity, it's actually an issue related to student outcomes and student success. Studies show us that when children have educators that look like them, they are more likely to go to college and graduate. Our guest today, Dr. Tequila Brownie, experienced this firsthand. 
Having teachers of color who helped her root and reflect was her first step to becoming the exceptional leader that she is today. Tequila is the CEO of the New Teacher Project at TNTP, a nonprofit that partners with local leaders to end inequalities within our public school system. In our conversation, Tequila and I talk about how when the racial identity of the teacher matches that of the student, that adult tends to have higher expectations. And higher expectations result in students that are better prepared for life's challenges. Tequila also does a great deal to dismantle what we call the opportunity myth, meaning the widely held belief that doing well in school automatically creates opportunities for children. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of moments of "Mm mm-hmm and ooh and amen. I had many of them and I did my best to self-regulate and not amen over Tequila's really powerful insights. Let's get into it. So you look gorgeous and fabulous. I love the top, the glow up. Yes, do you? You look wonderful. (laughs) Yes, yes, great. Thank you. Yes, you look beautiful. And I'm so glad to see that you're thriving while I know you're also advancing some very audacious and complex impact goals, you know, so I love that while you're changing the world, you're also caring for yourself. I love to see it. So let's see. One thing I know, Tequila, is that as the CEO of TNTP, that you have very busy, busy days. And so what I like to do for, say, more conversations is I like to give ourselves a chance to kind of transition to this space because you probably came from three things and have five things after this. And so, you know, it's helpful just to be able to transition and notice that we're here. So one thing I'd love for you to just take a moment to reflect on is Talk to me about something that just cracked you up recently, that had you laughing out loud, maybe till your belly or your cheeks hurt. Tell me about something that made you laugh recently. You, you can imagine, too, like, I appreciate the question, and you can imagine that it came from a child. So I have a son, a 13-year-old, and he recently purchased a new controller for his Xbox. And so, you know, like the parent thing, you're just asking questions about, you know, how much money it was. He had, you know, saved up his little allowance, um, needed a little bit of investment capital from me. (laughs) And so I'm asking Uh all these questions. And so he's a very loving, respectful child. But at one point he turns to me and he's like, you know, mom, I don't mean any harm, but like, really, when's the last time you used a controller? And basically he was, it was his way of like, saying, you know, stay in your lane. You don't know anything about controllers. I appreciate your curiosity, but as far as the expert on controllers, that would not be you. Uh, so it literally, I mean, he said it in such a loving, sweet way. He's like, mom, you know, I don't, I don't mean any harm, but you know, so you know what? I appreciate this generation. You know, he yes. knew I had zero content expertise <laughs> and, and zero user experience. So yeah. I tell you what, it just made me laugh in real time because I was like, you know what? Let me stay in my lane. What I don't need to be worried about is your selection of your controller for your Xbox. So we laughed about it. He did his thing. He's happy. I'm happy. Nothing on my to-do list. <laughs> I love that story. One is hilarious. I'm gonna share an example that is similar. So something's in the in the water these days about folks of our generation uh, getting in the business of younger folks access to video game controllers. I'm gonna tell you my story in a minute. But the other thing I love about that is that it speaks to it's your son talking you through the expertise of proximity. At New Profit, we believe in the expertise of proximate leaders, meaning we provide funding and support to social entrepreneurs who are directly connected to and most importantly, 
guided by the communities they serve. You, Dr. Brownie, do not have proximity <laughs> to the world of video game controllers. Right? You have proximity yes, to a great yes. many things, but not that. <laughs> but not that, not that, not And that. he needed some and capital I love from you, my, right? Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Right? <laughs> But he didn't need you to get all in the mix of what he was going to do with that capital because he knew what he needed to do. He had the expertise. And that's the theme say more that we're going to talk like, about. Say more, say more. <laughs> yes, yes. That's right. Say more, right? yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my thing that cracked me up recently, funny enough, is very similar. So my godson, who is, you know, just brilliant, has built a whole set of worlds around different sort of um, mythologies and stories. Like he's built his own version of like Children of the Bone, where there's groups with histories and backstories and languages and geographies. Like he's designed this whole world in his mind and has built a series of these stories, right? And so we were playing a video game that inspired one of the series he created. And, you know, I said, I tried to tell him, I said, you know, you know, nephew, I call him, I say nephew, because I just love to say nephew. I just love to say that. It makes me feel like Snoop when I get to say right. nephew. So I said, nephew, you know, this isn't really, I don't really do this very well. Like I have a some limitations when it comes to just moving the figures around. Like I, my brain and my hands don't relate well in the video game realm. And he was like, oh, you know, come on, come on, auntie. You know, he calls me auntie. Come on, auntie. You know, you got, come on, please. You know, this is easy. Right. And I was trying and he was like trying to get me to move this character just a few steps to the right. And I swear to you, Tequila, I could not do it. I just couldn't <laughs> get the thing to move. And he's like, just as sweet as you please. He, he just looked at me and he said, Oh, you really don't know how to do this, do you? <laughs> I just, I, I just fell out because he thought I was like being humble, right, or right. you know, he couldn't quite fathom that I really couldn't maneuver the little figurines or whatever they are on the screen. I even call them figurines. Talk about dating oneself. So right, you know, right, it's right. funny. It was just hilarious because he he was like, "Wow, I really understand something that you literally don't know how to understand." And I think it was a uh, kind. It was loving. He didn't think less of me, but he was like, oh, you really don't know how to do this. <laughs> and it was hysterical. It was so funny. So that what happened to me recently and it just made me holler. So I want to first start by rooting in the vocation that, you know, you are doing in such a powerful way. And, and I went to the dictionary just to make sure like I was thinking about the word vocation properly. So mm. vocation, right, is a person's employment or main occupation, especially regarded as particularly worthy and requiring great dedication. So that's the definition of vocation we're going to use for this conversation. And so with that definition, uh, Tequila, talk a little bit about what your vocation is, not only what your position and job is, but what is your vocation? I love, see, see, already too late. I love how you frame the question, right? Most people would just assume a, you know, what is your job? So you did not frame the question just as a simple, what is your job? So to me, my vocation is literally to make sure that kids that have experiences and backgrounds like my own, and I'll say a little bit more <laughs> about what that means, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have choices in life. I mean, you and I both know that poverty, which is the absence of resources, removes choices. Like we can have lots of dreams, lots of aspirations, lots of ideas, 
And in a context where we have poverty, especially multi-generational, intergenerational poverty, that just strips all choices from being there. And so my vocation is literally, literally steeped in removing the consistent predictability that race and zip code Hmm. have on life outcomes for kids. I mean, we can look at all the data and we know race and zip code are big, consistent, unfortunate predictors of life outcomes for children. Mm -hmm. And despite any of their brilliance, their own aspirations and any of those things, that hinders often in our, in our country and in our society that hinders their progress and their life outcomes. My very mission in life, I want to be, and therefore my vocation, I am fortunate that the two do intersect for me, is literally eradicating that consistent predictability. Mm, mm, It's powerful and clear. And what is it about your story and your experience, Tequila, that led you to have such passion about this vocation? Is there something about your story that focused you in this way? Yes. So my grandfather was born in... Clarksdale, Mississippi in 1910, right? So you can picture that, the deep, deep Jim Crow South. And my grandmother was born in 1922 in Greenwood, Mississippi. And they raised us, you know, along with their own children here in the Delta. And we didn't have indoor plumbing growing up. We, you know, I chopped cotton from the time I was, I think for the first time, eight years old. Mm. And when I tell people about that, you know, first they look at me like, oh, you don't look like you're a hundred years old. (laughs) But, you know, this was deep poverty in the forgotten Delta, you know, as as people say. And my grandparents, though they had limited formal education, they knew the power and potential of, of education. They were brilliant people. And it, even though they didn't beat it over our heads that, oh, you know, go to school, go to school, go to school, it was literally embedded in everything we did. So even though we didn't get, you know, 20 gifts at Christmas or at different holidays, anything related to school and furthering our education, my grandparents did everything they could to support that. Hmm. And so this is how, yeah, you know, I was engaged and a good student, but also my grandparents made sure that my sister and I, we were involved in extracurricular activities and the types of experiences that, you know, more affluent kids have access to. And that is what transformed my life and therefore helped me and some of my other family members escape intergenerational poverty. So by the predictions, my race and my zip code, I should not have matriculated to an Ivy League college. I should not have, you know, been able to escape poverty and help bring some of my other family members, you know, along with me. But that was the power of my lived experience, both through the power of a solid public education, but in partnership with my broader community and my family. I'm so thankful I didn't have to get shipped off to Chode or Exeter, you know, no shade to any of those Mm -hmm. boarding schools. You know, they are great places, but I'm so grateful that I got to stay right there in my community with my family, with my village and get the tools and experiences that set me up for success into adulthood. Today, Tequila is providing other children with that same experience she had, cultivating opportunity and support networks through education. At TNTP, Tequila partners with policymakers and educators to help improve the public education system. 
TNTP has 700 full-time staff members who live proximate to the communities that they work with. We work right now in about 300 different communities, you know, across about 41 states in our nation. And so we have staff in all of those places that are doing the work. So instead of, you know, sort of big brother flying in from New York or D.C., we have staff that live and work in the very communities that we are serving because we totally, as you said, believe kids don't experience life only within the four walls of their classroom, right? Right. They experience life in their lived experience daily, which happens both, yes, within their school, but also within their broader communities. And so our work at TNTP, we sit at that intersection. We touch everything from, yes, academics and talent and strategies and practices within the district and within schools and classrooms, but we also work in partnership with local elected officials. We work in partnership, you know, with community stakeholders, across the spectrum to ensure good, I would say, less fragmentation, I should Mm -hmm. say it that way, across systems to make sure we're setting kids up for success. It's really powerful. And again, I love that it feels like TNTP and the way that you and your team think about this work of education is like the antidote to that escape hatch strategy, which implies that there's like a hierarchy of capability, you know, according to zip code, right? And so it's really beautiful to see an example that contradicts that notion. So, you know, there's a lot of research out there, Tequila, that speaks to the fact that when children have educators who look like them, that the academic outcomes are stronger, that enrollment is higher, that it combats the isolation and loneliness that so many young people talk about these days. And that's that was the case for you. I mean, as I understand it, your education journey featured teachers and school leaders who looked like you. And so I wonder if you would speak to what was your lived experience with the power of having, you know, identity reflected in your educators? Tulane, what's interesting to me right now is, you know, everybody is talking about, oh, the teacher shortage, the teacher shortage. And I do want to remind our, you know, ourselves here in this conversation and, you know, our listeners, we have had diverse teachers before. And so when we talk about the teacher shortage, one of the things that we get hung up on, I think right now is there is a teacher shortage. That's one aspect. And then separately, we talk about educator diversity. Mm. And those two things are very inextricably linked, right? So I just want to name that because if you think about during, you know, segregation, which, you know, for me, my mother graduated from a segregated school, you know, here in Arkansas, in the South. And during that period, only educators of color were teaching students of color. And there were enough of them. One of the byproducts of integration is that it decimated, frankly, our educators of color. And we don't talk about that enough and what the ripple and long-term effect of that has been, both historically, but also present day. But I just want to name that because this wasn't always the case, that there were, you know, not enough educators, period. And secondly, it's certainly, you know, educators of color. So for me, I am so fortunate. That was not my lived experience to not have educators that look like me. My kindergarten teacher was a black woman. My second grade teacher was a black woman. My elementary school principal the entire time was a black man. 
My high school principal was a black man. So in, and along the way, right, I could go on and on. So I am so fortunate that throughout my experience from kindergarten to 12th grade, I had educators that looked like me. And the reason I think that matters is not just to your point, the research is very clear about outcomes. If you go underneath the hood in that a little bit, what I want to point out through our own research at TNTP, we have learned like, okay, what's underneath that? What's driving that? And one of the things that we found is that when the race of the teacher matches the race of the student, then that adult tends to have higher expectations. And you and I both know the soft bigotry of low expectations and what that does for students. And so it's not just this random magic that happens simply when we have educators of color. Right. Meaningfully, you start out with not not 100 percent, but you tend to have higher expectations. And without that, our students are kind of dead in the water. In my own journey, and the research is clear when you have multiple experiences of teachers that look like you, that sets you on an even higher trajectory. And that was the case for me. It's important for students to have experiences with teachers who look like them. It matters not just because these teachers can be role models, but also because teachers tend to set higher expectations for students with the same racial identity as their own. Yet in America, 80% of teachers are white race identity. This is why TNTP and the Hunt Institute launched the One Million Teachers of Color campaign. By our calculation, if we're going to close the gap of educator diversity, meaning where we have more consistency of students that have access to teachers of colors, we need to actually add one million new teachers of color in the next 10 years to begin to close that gap. Okay, And that's assuming we retain the current teachers of color. I I think I'll say one of the things that that I think about here is Bell Hooks, whom I know you, you are very familiar with, you know, has a quote, being oppressed means the absence of choices. And so if we have low expectations for students, that is oppression. It is pervasive throughout our schools, right? And it shows up in how adults are making decisions for students. If we look at affluent families and the experience that those kids are getting, yes, they have high expectations and they're getting access to great, effective, diverse teachers. And therefore, they're getting a quality education. That is essential. But good grades alone is not enough. I had plenty of classmates who were smart and made good grades and they yet ended up poor. If we think about the broader experiences kids need, like intrusive advising, right? Proactive advising, something we do in college. Why aren't we doing that for kids younger? Exposing them to other careers, right? right? Letting them explore other careers, tapping into their interests, right? So that the question you opened with me, that intersection of my job and my vocation and my passion it meets, right? Yes. And therefore, I am I am well, right? Yes. I am thriving. I'm able to take care of myself, but it's not costing me my very joy and life to be able to do so. That's right. That's, That's right. what we need for our students. If we're going to have the innovators, the inventors, the designers that we need to continue to be, you know, and, and again, it's twofold. I'm thinking at the micro and macro level. It's not just in service of our great nation, It is in service of the very citizens 
and humans within our nation, right? We will rise together. So if we fail to do this work to give kids and therefore families the experiences that they need to set themselves up for success, then we can ask the question, not just, you know, what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. Tequila is not only speaking from her lived experience, she has evidence to back it up. At TNTP, they released a groundbreaking report called The Opportunity Myth, which we've provided for you in the show notes of this episode. According to their research, while most students are performing well in schools, they don't actually get the necessary resources to succeed in the real world. For example, 71% of students met the demands of their school assignments, but only 17% were on track to succeed in their desired fields. What does that mean to you when you say opportunity myth? Yeah, so the opportunity myth for us, we think, well, as a nation, right, we say that education is the great equalizer. And we have our education system is built on this assumption that, oh, you just give everybody access and by their bootstraps, they'll climb. I don't know how else to say it too late. I'm going to just speak, speak plainly. Yeah. When you dumb it down for kids, thinking you're doing them a service, like, oh, is it accessible to kids? And, oh, it's above them. You're actually holding them back. But not only are you holding them back, you are withholding opportunity from them. Mm. And so what we found in our research, when you give kids access to just the opportunity, the at-bat to do rigorous work, you're actually setting them up and giving them a better shot at success in life. And that is the myth that we are operating within because we think just because kids are showing up every day and going to class and going to school and sitting, you know, on task, they are not getting the opportunities that other students are getting. Kids are not consistently getting access to the type of resources. So that's the myth. Mm. So again, much to unpack. So one, appreciate you and TNTP for generating this report, the opportunity myth. Now, when you talked about the ways in which current shifts and eliminations, frankly, of affirmative action, how they affect in particular, you know, IV economically elite and highly competitive institutions. There's something there that's really profound. I remember when I was a classroom teacher and I had the experience of adjacent one to the other teaching in a school that was focusing primarily on BIPOC learners, uh, was in an urban context and was designed as, I think, firmly rooted in that escape hatch structure. And shortly after, I did some teaching in a very elite private institution that was often sort of a feeder to a whole set of equally elite and competitive institutions sort of down the road, right? And what really blew my mind and broke my heart in having that experience one next to the other was that in the first school that I mentioned where students were students of color, where the economic, you know, the percentage of students on free and reduced lunch, which we always use as a marker, you know, around economics was, you know, well over 70%, that the main focus of instruction was managing behavior and teaching children of color how to act in ways that made them less or not threatening. 
And I would dare to say that when the focus was not managing and controlling behavior, it was exposure. Yes. As if there was not an abundant set of examples, exemplar, you know, humans, institutions that were led or, you know, designed by people who look like them. That's not to say that I am arguing for a segregated curriculum. I am noticing, though, that in that institution, much of it was about manage your behavior, don't make anyone uncomfortable, even though the source of their discomfort actually has nothing to do with you, but that's another podcast for another day. And Seek outside of yourself to find examples of excellence. Then when I was teaching in the economically elite private institution, it was very clear that I would be assessed and measured as a teacher by my ability to cultivate curiosity, by my ability to encourage students to ask questions, to challenge, to propose, to doubt, to wonder. You know, it was clear that if I simply pushed students on memorization and wrote behavior that I was failing as a teacher and my greatest responsibility was to cultivate their curiosity and their intellect and their sense of self. Yes. Right? Yes, totally. So I'm saying all that because it's like my version of a lived experience with what you're talking about with the opportunity myth and and all of the work that you're doing, the importance of the proximity of TNTP teachers to the communities in which they teach. Like this is not about charity. This is not about, you know, children playing together, you know, on a hilltop. This is about impact and effectiveness in the field of education. So it's really important. And I've seen and lived that as a teacher myself and really appreciate the way that you're framing and talking about this. And to add to that, Tulane, what I would say is, so I've been at TNTP for about 10 years now. And I stepped into the role of CEO a little over a year ago. And, and I remember when I interviewed for the role of CEO, I was very clear with the board that You know, if you want a CEO that's going to help TNTP double down and make sure more kids are reading and citing Shakespeare, I am not your next CEO. Mm. If you want a CEO that's going to ensure that TNTP is actually doing more to disrupt education inequities and therefore disrupt the racial wealth gap and the role that education plays to frankly exacerbate that rather than disrupt that, then I am your next CEO. Mm. When we think about preschool and you walk into a, the type of school you just, just described, if you walk into a publicly funded or government, you know, sort of government funded um, early childhood or pre-K program, to your point, the first thing they're taught, how to stand in line, how to follow mm-hmm. the rules, mm-hmm. right? You walk into More affluent schools, many, again, not picking, I love the Montessori model, for Mm -hmm. example, right? But those types of experiences, which is where more affluent kids are being placed, the first thing they're taught is to experience curiosity, ask questions, not just follow the rules to do, but to explore and understand and to your point, to nurture curiosity because that that's frankly what our democracy needs if we're going to have the next generation of inventors and designers that we need the second example where this shows up to me in our systems think about all of our students who are english as a second language student right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we almost beat their native language out of them we teach them like immediately come in learn english 
Put aside your native language, like almost pretend that you don't have it. But guess what affluent families are doing? They are paying more money for their kids to pick up a different language, right? They're paying for immersion programs. And so the irony, right? Like having a second language is seen as a deficit for multi-language learners, but it's seen as an asset for affluent families. Isn't that, is, do you get the irony of that? And so I that do. to me, is just, those are just, you know, a couple of very real examples of how this alleged meritocracy, like to your point, how the real story plays out mm. within our very K-12 system. And then the second big point I want to raise here, I'm going to invoke, you know, I think a mutual author that you and I have that we admire, Heather McGee, right, who wrote The Song of Us. Heather McGee is an inspirational policy advocate who we've previously mentioned in our podcast because I love her work so much. If you're wondering what the book is about, just check out the title, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. One of the things that is true within each of these sectors separately, but then plays out even more of a snowball effect is what she writes about, which is that zero-sum scarcity mentality. Yes. So think about it. Within the silo of education, we are operating with a scarcity zero-sum. Oh, if we educate kids from poverty more, we assume that's going to take away from affluent kids. It doesn't have to be that way. We assume that if we have more equitable health care policies, oh, we're going to let poor people be healthier. Oh, that means affluent people will have to be less healthy. Again, it doesn't have to be that right way, right? So those two big, and again, I'm I'm staying here for a minute, but those two big concepts, accepting the interconnectedness across systems and rejecting a zero-sum mentality, if we start out with those two things and accepting that those two things are present today, but don't have to be, and frankly, cannot be present if we're going to be successful, then we will, that will force us to do some reckoning to Lane with some of the very systems and therefore choices that we have made about some of our current institutions. Go ahead and teach Dr. Brownie. <laughs> That's exactly right. I think that everything you said, that was a, that was a word and a lesson and so profound. And so it's swimming in my mind and I'm really taking it in. And so for my listeners, you know, I encourage you, if you're not breathing deeply to take a deep breath, get more oxygen to your brain to ensure that you're really internalizing this information and not having it sort of gloss over you because it's really important. You're talking to Quila about how we shift our mental models, how we tell ourselves the truth about the choices we have made that we can change, that it is actually within our power to make different choices. It is not the boogeyman. It is not beyond us. It is not more than we can handle. In fact, we must engage. We can't sort of wring our hands and wipe our brows at this moment. So I really appreciate you breaking it down in this way. And, you know, when we talk about choices, I remember I was reflecting uh, on many years ago when I was uh, looking to get one of my first, you know, apartments, you know, on my own as a young woman in the city. And, you know, I was looking around at places and the place I got really excited about that I invited my father to come and look at, because, you know, that was the thing, you know, you could find a place to lay and scope it out. And then we got to lay eyes on yes. it. And Daddy had to sign off here. <laughs> you know, and is this something, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, is yeah, this, you yeah. know. And, and the thing that was amazing, girl, is that I was looking at this apartment and was so excited about it. And my father came and he looked at it 
And, you know, my father is a, you know, <laughs> he is a, a classic man in the best sense of that term. He, you know, he didn't come in and, you know, show out. He was smooth like butter, but he kind of walked around with me and he helped me notice that the back entrance to the apartment, which was ground level, right, was adjacent to a methadone clinic. I didn't even notice that, sis. I was so excited about having this opportunity to be in a place that was my own and looking at the shiny appliances, yeah. you know, that stainless steel-esque refrigerator yeah. Yeah. and the, yeah. The, yeah. the sort of faux marble top <laughs> counter, right? Yeah, yeah right. I yeah. missed yeah. Yeah. That the ground level back entrance to the apartment was adjacent to a methadone clinic. Now, there's no shade of judgment about folks who are living in recovery. There's not. That's right. And right. yet, as a young woman, single, making her way, my father, who cares about my safety yes. and well-being, wanted me to have a different choice in yes. terms of what was proximate yeah. to my back door on the ground level. Right. Yes. Um, and there exactly. were a range of other things exactly. I didn't notice. And I'll tell you. Not long after I had been looking at that place, um, sad to say, a woman was uh, her her life was taken from her violently in that specific area. Now, that is not about me creating a story about people going through suffering and struggle or addiction. It is to say mm -hmm. that there's something about somebody who loves you laying eyes on your context and circumstance that enables you to see more clearly than you otherwise might what is a strength or a vulnerability of that condition. Do you feel what I'm saying? Yes. Like there's something yeah, totally. about that. Yep. And so I do, yes. right? And so I feel like there's something about those of us who are fortunate enough to, like you, Tequila, have our vocation and our work be matched, that it's our responsibility to come in and lay eyes yes. on and tell the truth yes. about the safety yes. of the conditions in which our children are learning and living. There's something about that. So, you know, I want to shift gears a bit and move from the kind of meta to the micro, to the individual. And so I mentioned earlier that Carla Monteroso, who is just somebody who I'm just such a fan of and student of, frankly, talks a lot about the reality of multicultural and multiracial institutions. And there's a quote she offered that I want to pressure test with you, Tequila. She says, there is disproportionate punishment, disproportionate fear, disproportionate anger. When black people make a mistake of some kind, as the population of beautiful cultures comes into power in multicultural institution building, we will be able to see more acutely the things that were not just because we have different expectations of people of color than we do of white people. So what she is saying is essentially that when we as we see a growing number of people of color stepping into executive leadership roles that we will see a reduced tolerance for inequity because there's something about how the society is harder on black folks. And so it's easier to scrutinize, challenge, question, and contest when a black person is in the executive seat. So one, I wonder, Tequila, if that resonates with you and specifically, how have you seen black and Latinx leadership in positions of formal executive power being held to different standards and one might argue higher standards. Have you seen that? Yeah, I mean, so obviously, yes. <laughs> um, I, I, I have seen that, certainly, you know, have experienced that, you know, in my own, not just, you know, TNCP, but my own journey overall. And I think to your point, part of what allows that to perpetuate is because we are the exceptions and not the rules. 
I mean, I feel like that's what, what we, you were getting at is like when, when you're no longer the other, the scrutiny becomes different because it's not like you're the one. And so there's that risk, right? Think about the talented tenth, right? The ten, you know, it's like, okay, oh, you, we can't afford for you to mess up because mm-hmm. then you'll, you'll break the piggy bank, right? You know, for those that could come behind you and no one will be given another chance. So, so I start out responding that way to Lane because I have to acknowledge as a leader, as an executive, as a black woman, that I had to unshackle my own mind around taking risks and making mistakes. And I push on that because I too was shackled by, wait a minute, I can't mess up because if I mess up, not only will that have repercussions for me, it will then erase or close doors for those that could come behind me. I had to, I had to just abandon that mental model and say, you know what? I was raised to whom much is given, much is required. So if I don't take risks, if I don't push the envelope, if I don't name what I can see, what others can't see, then all I'm going to do is be even more complicit in the systems that are already here. Right. And Tulane, it, it took, and so that means you have to have the courage to, to accept the fact that, you know, you got to move in seasons. You have to know when it's your time to be that voice, to not be that voice. I believe wholeheartedly you need Batman, but you need, uh, what is his real name during the day? What's Batman? Help Bruce me. Bruce Wayne, right? My Ain't son would Wayne? be so upset. Bruce Wayne. <laughs> yeah, you need Batman so and Bruce Wayne. Yeah, right? <laughs> right. I was like, wait a minute. I was like, oh, my son would be so upset if I could remember this, right? It's like, but you need both, right? And so, yeah. you know, there are periods where you have to move in both spaces, but you need both. And so all that to say, there is something about those of us in these seats rejecting the caution Mm-hmm. That I feel like our lived experience tells us we have to operate within to be so safe, while also Tulane holding true that, yeah, there are lots of places and ways that it shows up. That's how we'll create sort of the psychological safety that executives like you and me can fully, you know, thrive and lean into. But I can't wait for somebody else to do that. I am having to make choices today that I think are in the best interest of the work. I had to tell a colleague recently, um, and this was not, I have a wonderful board. I'm so thankful, very supportive, Mm -hmm. but I had to have a member of my team, you know, who was saying, well, you know, staff are questioning. They're saying, oh, it's cool. You know, you're being really direct. And so I heard a little bit of a like angry black woman within there. It was veiled, right? But it was a little bit of that. And I'm like, oh, well, that's fascinating. When, when, my predecessor, Dan, salt of the earth, good person, you know, and they would say, oh, yeah, when Dan made decisions and, you know, it was more direct people, they applauded. They were like, great, you know, Dan is, you know, he's unapologetic and we're doing the work, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, oh, when I do that, I am now defensive. I'm being defensive, right? Or And so I had to name that and call that and also Tulane, just say plain speak. I'm not one to ask for permission to run this organization. That's right. That's right. To whom much is given, much is required. There are so many more discussions I could have had with Tequila, but it was only right for me to open it up for you to ask Tequila your questions. 
If you'd like to contribute with questions for future Say More episodes, follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. There you'll get a chance to be in conversation with upcoming guests. So I want to share uh, one question from our good friend, Jeff Livingston, who wants to know, Tequila, how are you using artificial intelligence in your work at TNTP? Oh, I love that. I love Jeff and I love the question. So one of the things that we did is, this is a real example. So as we've been trying to, basically we're in the process of articulating, operationalizing our new vision, right? So, you know, doing a lot of listening sessions and, you know, getting feedback from folks. And, you know, when it comes to synthesizing that, it's like, okay, what is this saying? So using chat GPT literally to summarize succinctly the various threads and perspectives that we've heard from team members to help us articulate, okay, what are we really saying here, right? So mm-hmm. it, it accelerated our ability to like play back what we'd heard instead of just relying on, you know, this, like, you know, somebody transcribing all the thoughts, we write it up, we all read it, we do this. So that has been fascinating. Just That's just interestingly, you know, internally. The other way that AI is showing up for us is as we think about in our work, how we're thinking about it is how do we use chat GPT, AI, and other things to two things, get better solutions and strategies to all kids. We're very committed to not just getting access to kids, you know, on the urban corridor, but kids in rural America, right? So we're thinking about how to utilize it for in that vein. And then in the other ways, we think about the future, right? In the future economy, we are very cognizant that the kids of today, those kindergartners, that will be what they know, right? Yeah. And so we have to be thinking about preparing them for a future where that's like the norm. And so we're thinking about how do we equip our teachers who could be resistant, right, to these new technologies instead of seeing them and embracing them as they're they're here, right? They're here and they're going to be a part of the future. And we need to be very focused on making sure educators are using them for good and using them in a productive manner on behalf of their own practice today, but also for kids um, as they move into their own lives. I love that. And so the closing question I have for you is um, based on a quote that you probably have heard me say to Quilla in different spaces. And it's about, you know, you've heard me talk about an American evolution that I believe we're due for an evolution of our relationships, our beliefs and our systems, you know. And, you know, I want to offer a quote that then leads to the closing question. So the quote is from someone who I have to acknowledge I do not know. It's somebody who posted this on Twitter. And I love the quote and I take no responsibility if this person is out there acting a fool in other ways. I just like this particular (laughs) quote. And so I'm offering it. So it's from Crow's Fault on Twitter. And his quote is, people speak of hope as if it is this delicate, ephemeral thing made of whispers and spiders' webs. It's not. Hope has dirt on her face, blood on her knuckles, the grit of the cobblestones in her hair, and just spat out a tooth as she rises for another go. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gritty hope is the kind of hope that I subscribe to. And so I wonder, Tequila, if you also uh, resonate with that, what is your greatest hope for an evolved America? Oh, that is a very good question. So my greatest hope for an evolved America, I would say, is one where one of our biggest promises that we make as a great nation is the promise of a quality education. And we talk about it as being 
the great equalizer. But right now, it's not that. It actually, frankly, is the great exacerbator. It actually further separates the haves from the have-nots. So my greatest hope would be that, you know, in my lived experience, education did service my way up and out of poverty for myself and now my child and many other members of my family. And when you come from that type of deep entrenched poverty, to have the type of experience and exposure that I had, you know, I'm to sit at the table, you know, with people that are billionaires and, and again, not just money. I don't want to confuse that, right? But people that are brilliant and have similar thinking and appreciation and, and an asset orientation for what is possible. That has been beautiful in my life, right? To sit with people who have their journey was very different from mine, but they can see the thing that I can see, which is what's possible if we make different choices. Mm -hmm. And so my greatest hope is that education begins to actually be the great equalizer that we purport it to be, but that it currently we choose based on our actions and decisions that right now it's not. Bring it back full circle. So I so appreciate you, Tequila. I appreciate your leadership, your vision, your clarity, your intelligence, your razor sharp intelligence, and the the love that I believe and I see undergirds everything that you do. So thank you so much. And I'm excited for the work that you and I will continue to do together and very grateful for the sisterhood and friendship. I am grateful as well. And I look forward to continuing to get into good trouble with you, Tulane. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Say More with Tulane Montgomery so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Say More with Tulane Montgomery is produced by New Profit and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at New Profit, visit newprofit.org. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.